have your Bibles, if you would join me as we come back to this great text before us, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read verse 1 down to verse number 6 tonight. Second Corinthians 10. I had somebody send me a picture of some great decorations they put up on their house. They said, make sure my wife doesn't see that because then the pressure will be on me. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. We, we stay away from Pennsylvania. We, we, don't, we don't go that deep into the States right there, right? Second Corinthians 10. Uh, let's read verse 1 down to verse number 6. It says, now I, Paul, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who is in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you, I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am uh, present uh, with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and to everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. God, I pray that it would just flood our hearts with wisdom and understanding. We live in a world today that is fully opposed to the things of God, and we pray that you would grant us wisdom from your word to be able to navigate the spiritual, uh, the spiritual warfare that we face and the false teachings and ideologies that will stand against the truth of Christ. Give us understanding, give us focus, and may we be doers of your word uh, as we hear tonight what you would have for us. We ask it all in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight. Well, though we refer to the book of 2 Corinthians as uh, the second epistle of Paul to the church at Corinth, it's actually his fourth letter to the church at Corinth. He had written two other letters to the church at Corinth, which we do not have. Two were inspired, the other two, though written by Paul, God did not uh, include in the canon of Scripture. Now, this is the most important personal of all Paul's letters that he ever wrote. Uh, Though he loved the church at Corinth dearly, uh, they were a church that caused him great grief. And if you have a child that uh, perhaps has caused you great grief, you though you love them much, uh, you know the feeling of a spiritual father that Paul was to that church. Uh, This was uh, a church that he started on his second missionary journey according to Acts chapter 18. After a year and a half at Corinth, Paul went to Ephesus. He had stayed there for several weeks, then to Jerusalem briefly, back to Ephesus. While he was at the city of Ephesus, he wrote a letter according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, that we do not have. It was written to warn them about fornication that was going on in the church. In response to that first letter that we do not have, they came back with a lot of questions for Paul, and that's, that was what you have as 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter in response to the questions posed by the believers there at Corinth. And if you remember, the city of Corinth was a very wicked city, very carnal, uh, a, a hub of, 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 
so much in the world at that time. And uh, there was a lot of pagan teaching going on, a lot of sexual misconduct. To Corinthianize, somebody was meant to go to bed with a prostitute. It was that kind of a carnal setting. So uh, he had written in response to them. That's why he deals with a lot of topics in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he dealt with marriage, divorce, food sacrifice to idols, spiritual gifts, collection for the saints, uh, speaking in tongues, a lot of those things. But in 1 Corinthians... Uh, is is a response to those those questions that they had, uh, but it did not accomplish everything that he wanted uh, to do and deal with there at the church. Uh, there were some uh, there were some people at the church at Corinth that were false teachers, uh, Judaizers that were stirring people up against Paul, uh, causing problems. And according to Second Corinthians chapter two, there was a. Uh, what would what would be referred to as a painful visit that Paul made to the city uh, of Corinth to visit the church. Uh, we don't know how long that visit was, uh, but it was a very confrontational visit between Paul and some of these Judaizers. Uh, and so he did not get uh, to fulfill everything he wanted to on that trip. There was a lot of uh, dissension going on then against him. And, and, you know, when you think about that, it's just always amazing to me the amount of pushback the Apostle Paul had by the churches. Just consider that for a moment. The Apostle Paul was, was just slandered repeatedly by, by certain people in the church. And re, so returning to Ephesus, he sent another brief letter by Titus uh, this was his third letter. Uh, we don't have it. This was, uh, uh, what was what has been referred to by theologians as the severe letter. Second uh, Corinthians 2, uh, he refers to it. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love wherewith I have more abundantly unto you. Uh, thankfully, many in the church did repent after he sent that that strong letter, but the false teachers were still waging war against Paul. So this book called Second Corinthians, which again is the fourth letter written by Paul to the Corinthians, is his second inspired letter. And the, and the letter can be broken down into three categories. And I'm giving you that introduction so you can understand where we are in the book. So chapter 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians is Paul being very personal with them. Uh, he's dealing with some doctrinal teachings, but he, it's restoring his relationship with the Corinthians. Uh, after that relationship has been restored, uh, chapter 8 and 9, uh, he moves into uh, feeling comfortable enough to talk to them about uh, sending the money that they had promised for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. So the, all of chapter 8 and 9 have to do with them sending a love offering to the suffering uh, saints, basically a missions offering to those people uh, that need help in Jerusalem. Uh, then the last four chapters, chapter 10 through 13, uh, there is a definite change of tone. His, his language changes. Uh, he becomes very confrontational. Uh, he becomes very direct. Um, and, and he basically spends the last four chapters uh, rebuking and seeking to ultimately annihilate the false teachers. He is not looking, he is not looking to um, keep them around. Uh, he, is, he is going after them in, a, in, in what could be called a war against false teachers. Uh, some, of the, some of the attacks that these, these false teachers were stirring up inside the church, they accused him of being fickle, that you could not depend upon him. 
chapter 117. He talks about that in this book. They, they, re, they referred to him and uh, said that he was an authoritarian, a dictator, uh, thirdly, not having proper credentials to minister, according to chapter 3. Uh, they, they say that he was fleshly. If you notice chapter 10, verse 2, we read uh, the second half of verse number 2. It says, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Uh, some people were saying he's, he's, a carnal, he's a carnal Christian. He's a fleshly Christian. I mean, isn't it crazy? Like, like what part of Paul's life was carnal? The part they carved off when they were beating him? I mean, this is insanity, isn't it? Uh, they also, notice, look at, look at how they rebuke him in verse 10. This is what the, 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 the false teachers at Corinth were saying about him as well. Verse 10, it says, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. I mean, the man can't even preach well. His speech is like a child. This guy is not eloquent, he's not dignified, he's a weak preacher. They, they, they referred to him as being presumptuous, and later in chapter 10, not being dignified enough in chapter 11, verse 7. Uh, so, so, I mean, he is facing some serious onslaught. Uh, it makes me feel pretty good as a preacher. I'm like, man, I, I, you know, I'm sure I've been hit with all of those, but you, know, you guys are very loving, and and I appreciate your kindness. And if you say, preacher, you don't know what so-and-so said, well, I don't need to hear about it, okay? <laughs> Just, that's fine. Preacher don't know to know everything, amen? Amen, that's right. Yeah. If you have a question whether you should tell me or not, just take it to the Lord and pray about it, amen? Yeah, give me peace. But he said they were, uh, Paul, Paul had some strong charges against them as well. Uh, he he. he he uh, said they were corrupting the word of God in chapter 2, verse 17. He said, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Uh, look, look at how he refers to them in chapter 11, verse 13. He says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. There is, therefore, it is no great mystery, no great thing, if his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So in the church, were people masquerading as apostles of Jesus, and they were actually apostles of Satan. That's how powerful deception is. That's how powerful the, the, the ways of, of Satan's servants can portray themselves. They, 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 if you heard them speak, you would say, there's no way that person is not a believer. There's no way. I mean, nobody thought when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, did the other 11 say, I knew it was Judas? I mean, that guy just, you know, he's in a dark mask. He's always in the corner, you know. No. They, they, they're like, you know. And then Judas got up and left that evening. And they're like, where's he going? I'm like, do you guys have no brains? Like, I mean, this is crazy, you know. It's, it's incredible to me. It's like, but, but I would have been just like them. I'd have been like, Judas is like the most trustworthy guy. And so... 
these are these are the false teachers. It's important to know that one of the responsibilities of the pastor is to warn the flock of God, to warn of false teachers, to protect the church from false teachers. And when a pastor does that, people will think he's mean-spirited. How can you warn against someone and people not be offended? Especially if who you're warning against. Because, you know, you could say, hey, don't go to that Satan club after school. Right? Everybody's like, well, duh. But, but what about that group that says they're Christians, but are not teaching an accurate Christ or reflecting a true philosophy that the Bible teaches or are distorting the truth enough to keep people from the gospel? And there's a lot of that kind of thing that can go on. And when you warn about, hey, there's that pastor or that person on TV, that well-known individual there, uh, you need to be weary of him because they're not teaching a true gospel. They're teaching a false gospel. There's enough truth to keep soft Christians attached, but discerning Christians would never have a part of that. Some of you were in churches that you grew in your faith past what that church was, right? Like you grew to a point where you're like, I can't handle this guy anymore. I can't take this. And you didn't leave because it was so loud or because of the music. You left because the teaching of the Word of God was absent or thin or not biblical or watered down. And it just was like, can you read a verse? Can we come to the Bible tonight? Can we read the Scriptures? Now, I can read the newspaper myself, friend. I'm not looking for opinion sections. Uh, give me the Word of God. Amen. That's where we want. That's what we want. That's where we want to go. And and, and you're drawn to that, and, 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 and because I think, I think people can get saved in some of the watered-down Christian churches, but they won't stay there if they start growing. I believe God pulls them out and, and, and brings them, and that's what He did with my family. I got saved in a, in, in a watered-down atmosphere, but, but, but man, we got grounded in a church, and, and it just tur turned us around. So just understand, one of the responsibilities of a faithful pastor is to warn his people. In Acts 20, 29, Paul is at Ephesus. This is his departing, this is his departing announcement. He says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Isn't that something? They're going to come from the outside and they're going to come from the inside. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to what? Did you see it? I, oh, no, I heard you. I appreciate you getting more lively about it. That's, so he, he, he says, I warn you. I mean, this is, this is every day, night and day, like over and over. Let me ask you, if this was a problem in first century, you know, this is around maybe 50 A.D., uh, 60 AD. Do you think it's a problem in 2023? Philippians 3.18, he says, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. I can tell you, the people he's warning them about were not people that were dressed up like Satan worshipers. They looked like Jesus followers. They were the ones that would be like, man, I... they're the ones that would come in and split a church in half. They're the ones who would come in and turn people after them. I remember one time we had a guy that came to this church for a while, and he began to, behind the scenes, get very disagreeable about certain things that we taught. He believed in what was known as perfected sanctification, that you could become sinless, basically. 
and that if you sinned, you would lose your salvation. And he hated the idea that you could, that he, he, he totally rejected the idea that salvation is eternally secured by God, uh, but that we have to maintain good works to keep ourselves safe. Uh, and, and, and that's what he believed, that you had to maintain good works to keep yourself saved. And, and, and so, so he got everybody's email. We had, a, we had a publication for membership of the church, and he, he got everybody's email on there and, and sent a video to everybody except myself and the staff. And so people were coming, and they thought we, like, sponsored the video. And this guy's putting this stuff out. And um, <laughs> so... I got on that phone. I said, hey, we're going to have a conversation right here, buddy. Uh, this ain't how this thing's going to work. And I'm going to rebuke you publicly when I get up on Sunday morning. And, and, if, and I didn't have to name his name. I just said, whoever got an individual's video, that person is teaching heresy. And the church does not agree with that. And I can tell you, that's a, that's a keeping your church safe thing. Amen? People need to know that the pastor didn't sponsor that. That's the same guy that shows up on the corner on a July 4th and, and decries us as being heretics in front of hundreds of people when there's a July 4th event here. And, and, and just that kind of a radical mindset. But you praise God puts those people out. They don't last because and you, got it, you have to confront those kind of things. And so Jude 3, I always think of this is an interesting verse, Jude uh, chapter 1 is only one chapter, but in verse 3 he says this, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of our common salvation. Like, he, you know, here's Jude. He's, he's looking forward to write a positive, edifying message, letter to him. You know, I really wanted to write about our common salvation, just, just the things we had in common. It isn't nice to write positive stuff. But he's like, you know, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Why should we earnestly contend? Verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our Lord into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes off to warn them the rest of the chapter. Matthew 24, 4, Jesus, when they said, What will the end times be like? Jesus says, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Deception will be wholesale in the end times. And it's not going to be easy to discern it. You'll be like, man, but they, they say a lot of good things. You know, they, it's just, man, it's hard to, Second Peter, you, know, you know, Second Peter was written, what Deuteronomy is to Moses what 2 Timothy is to Paul, which was their last letters to those groups, is what 2 Peter is to the Apostle Peter. It, it is his last testament. And, and, and it's only three chapters long. Chapter 1, so what, is, what do you write when you're in a prison cell facing crucifixion? What do you, what do you write? Last words are a big deal. Chapter 1, you're totally sufficient in Christ, and the Word of God is your final authority. Not only is it sufficient, but it is reliable. It's written by the Holy Spirit, not men. Chapter 2, the entire chapter, he writes about warning people of false teachers. The entire chapter. That's how big of a deal it was. Chapter 3, the Lord's coming back like a thief in a night, and you better be ready. The end. <laughs> so... You think it's important to, to be warned of false teaching? Those are necessary elements. 
One reason it's so essential for Paul to defend his testimony, though, when you come into 2 Corinthians chapter 10 through 13, you're going to feel like, man, Paul seems a little bit defensive. Like he seems like he's defending himself. He is. You know why? You know why he's defending himself? Because God put Paul in his hand to author 13 books of the New Testament. So if you could disqualify Paul, you've disqualified what? The Word of God. So the scripture that he wrote is not scripture because if the author is disqualified, then the letters are disqualified. So Paul's like, he had to defend himself. It was a very uncomfortable thing. He says, I am a fool in glory. That's what he calls himself. He's like, I am I'm made a fool in glory. You have compelled me to do this. <laughs> That's how he talks to him. He gets really intense. He's like, you, you have forced me into this. I didn't want to have to defend myself. I didn't, have to, didn't want to get into all this stuff, but now you've compelled me. And, 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 he, and he does it. So you just, I, I lay all that as a foundation because we're going to be spending four chapters Paul assaulting false teachers. And if it was a big deal 2,000 years ago, friends, this is a big deal for us today. Because I, I'm telling you, we live in a world where if, if, if there's ever been a premium on Christians' discernment, it's today. And if there's ever been something Christianity's lacking in today, it's discernment. They cannot discern things. I hear Christians sometimes around the world, different places on different settings, they'll say things and I'm like, how did they come to that? Like, how, you ever feel that way? Like, I mean, they just, they, they just can't even, it's like they, they just so blinded. They must have never, they just don't understand. And, I, and I, it, it breaks my heart. And, and so uh, let's, let's walk through five keys um, five keys tonight to um, winning the spiritual warfare that we, we face in life. Now, the first thing here is in verse number one, we must follow Christ's example. Paul, now there's a turning of tone here, verse one, now I, Paul, myself. This is a, this is a statement of, of directing a conversation to a new topic. He just got done talking about finances. He's done talking about finances. He's getting into spiritual conversation here about spiritual warfare uh, with these false teachers. He says, now I, Paul, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of who? Yeah. So again, this is very personal. Now I, Paul, myself. This is me talking to you now. He says, and he extends a gracious offer, doesn't he? He says, I beseech you, I urge you. Is the idea there by the meekness and gentleness of Christ? You know, meekness is a is a word that means power under control, and the gentleness of Christ. The gentleness of Christ. Gentleness there is from a word that means like, I will not make demands upon you to owe me what you owed me. Like like I'll be gentle and gracious and let it go. And he urges them with this kind of a spirit of humility. The culture of Corinth was extremely godless and prideful. Uh, Paul had, in chapter 1, confront them because of their infighting and divisions and schisms. And he rebukes them for this. And in chapter number 2, he says, because the, to, to them, whoever the greatest orator was got the greatest applause. You know, they were like, yeah, you can speak well. And they'd have amphitheaters. And, you know, it was just, it was just, it was just Corinth. I mean, this, this, is, this is what, what, and it fed their pride great debaters, great orders. And so 
how does Paul respond to this? First Corinthians chapter two, it says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not in excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Do you think Paul could have spoken in an elevated way? I mean, haven't we read 13 books of the New Testament that he wrote? He could definitely speak at a high level. He chose not to. And they literally use it against him. So in chapter 10, verse 10, they say his speech is contemptible. This guy can't speak well. It's like they're, they're just, they're so blind. How do you deal with people who turn your spiritual virtues and attack you with them? What do you do when, when you act in a humble way and they use that against you? <laughs> Isn't that painful? It's like, it's like, you know, I was being like Jesus and they like hit me for it. Now I don't want to be like Jesus anymore. I want to like be like Peter for a minute, you know. Or I'll make a cord of whip and drive them out, baby. You know, I want to. You've been there before, haven't you? Yes. And, and, and Paul highlights that he is only following the example of Christ. He says, so he says this, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The meekness and gentleness of Christ was so powerful that the great apostle Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 2. He says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable for God, uh, with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. Is that easy to do? When he suffered, he threatened not but would committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And so if they felt Paul was weak and a weakling, then so was Jesus based on that standard. So that's why he says, I, I come to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You want to call me weak? Then call Jesus weak. Because I'm only following his example. You know, yet as meek and gentle as Christ was, Jesus could also be a lion. You know, meekness doesn't mean the lion's dead. It just means the lion's tamed. It's the difference between the wild stallion running on the hillside under no control and one who is under the power of the reins. Jesus could contain himself. He, he, he wasn't a toddler. He, could, he was a man, right? Jesus was a man who could contain himself. But you press him far enough, and it's not that he lost his meekness. It's just you stirred up his righteous anger. And you don't want that unleashed. In, in Matthew 21, he, he makes a quart of whips, John 2, and runs them out of the temple. Which is an incredible thing, because there would have been thousands of people there. Wouldn't you like to have seen that? Like a fly on the wall? It would have been such a setting, everybody had been like, yeah. Let me tell you, you wouldn't have felt like comfortable like, hey, I'm going to go sit down and ask Jesus a bunch of questions after that. You'd have been like, this was pretty intense. Yeah, Jesus got, he's intense and he had every right to be that way. You would have felt, you, you would have had a holy fear and awe of God then. 
Joel Osteen wouldn't know what to do in that scene. What, 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 is, what Paul is saying in verse 1 and 2 is don't make me have to come to you boldly and forcefully. Rather, respond to my gracious plea. Because in, in, in chapter 10, verse number uh, 1 at the very end, he says, you say, uh, you know, I'm base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. He says, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with you. Uh, with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He says, I don't want to have to come and be bold. I can. <laughs> I mean, just read, read Matthew 23. What did Jesus say to the scribes and Pharisees? I mean, isn't that a, he derides them. He, 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 he makes a oracle of woe, a divine declaration of judgment against the Pharisees and scribes eight times. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Boom, just nails them to the wall. Last week of Jesus' life, he is just slaying them with his words. They have rejected him, and now he's rejected them. They said, Jesus, you've offended them. He said, that's okay. They are blind leaders of the blind. They are falling in the ditch. They're done. They've rejected me. I've rejected them. The judgment of God was upon it. Bold, the bold Christ. I, I, I want to come to Christ humbly because I want the gracious Christ over me. Amen. But listen, friend, you, you want to reject him? You want to mock his words? You want to disobey his truths? Uh, he can be bold. That's why the Bible says, uh, fear the Lord, right? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Friend, when you are wronged, when someone has offended you, when something needs confronted, do you respond with gentleness and meekness as Christ did? I was reading Warren Wiersbe, and he said uh, whenever he received a critical letter, he was a great old-time pastor. I know we even have a couple here at church. Lynn and Linda used to be part of his church. He was one of the great, great faithful men of God in our country of yesteryear. But he said he would... He was a church of a couple thousand people and, and a big radio ministry. He said sometimes he would receive very, very harsh letters. And um, he, he had one lady in his church. She said, I heard you're going on vacation. He said, I am. She's like, you know, the devil never goes on vacation. He said, there was a lot of things I wanted to say to her at that point. Like, I can tell, you know, but he doesn't. You know, he holds it back. But he says, uh, he says whenever he gets these negative letters and he feels like he wants to respond right away, he says he'll, he'll put them away and uh, take time to pray, consider before he responds. And I think, I think there would be a lot of wisdom in that today. Uh, if, if, you ever, if you ever get something that you're like, man, I just need to respond to that and you're just fired up, uh, take, it, take 24 hours and pray over that. Read read first. Peter chapter number 2, verse 19 through 23. Weep over the cross. Weep over the grace that Christ has shown you and I. And you'll probably come to that and say, you know what? If they knew, if they knew me like Christ knew me, they, there's so much more they could have said. But I'm going to be gracious to them because he's been so gracious to me. Friends, in the midst of struggles in life, it's always better to respond slower than faster. How many less problems we would have? So, so first of all, respond like Christ. Secondly, recognize the intensity of the Christian conflict. 
Notice the language he uses here in verse 3 through 4. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not, notice the word war after the flesh. Uh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through, the, through God, through the pulling down of strongholds. And then he goes in verse 5, casting down. Talks about in chapter five, or verse number 5, bringing them into captivity. Uh, this, is, this is war language. This is intensity of the battle. Uh, it's important for all of us as Christians to understand the, the reality and intensity of the Christian life is a war. 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul writes, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. This is a battle. 2 Timothy 2, 3 says, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure it. Like stand strong. Verse 4, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You are in the Lord's army, as the song says, and he has chosen you to be a soldier and stand your ground. It's interesting when you get to Ephesians 6, we'll look at that a little bit later, but four times, I believe it's the word histomai, it's, it's stand firm, stand firm, stand, stand, stand. It's like withhold your position in the face of intense pressure. You just stay there. You feel like giving up and giving in, but you don't. It's an intense. It's intense. Like, you ever feel like, man, will the pressure ever give up? Will it ever release? And then by God's grace, it does. And you're like, man, it's nice to get through that. Like, like, like it, the, the storm kind of calms down. If, if Jesus put his disciples at least a couple times on purpose in the midst of a real storm, that was life-threatening, do you think he'll ever allow us to go through those seasons to test our faith and to grow us? He wants to see how we, we will respond. Thirdly, not only recognize the intensity of the Christian conflict, but thirdly, recognize the spiritual nature of the war. Uh, our opponent is not simply some physical person, but rather a spiritual war that we are involved in. Verse 3 says, we do not war after the flesh. We, we, we're, not, we're not battling a, a, a physical opponent here. One writer says, the battlefields of history are strewn with the wreckage of courageous but ill-equipped soldiers. At the famous battle of Little Bighorn, George Armstrong Custer recklessly led his men against a much larger force of Sioux and Cheyenne warriors. In the ensuing battle, his regiment was destroyed, and he and all 210 men under his immediate command were killed. When the Nazi Blitzkrieg rolled into Poland, a brigade of Polish cavalry gallantly but foolishly charged a formation of German tanks. The trooper, troopers' lances and swords were no match for the panzer's cannons and machine guns, and they were all slaughtered. You need to understand who you're going up against so you don't use fleshly weapons in a spiritual conflict. That's why Ephesians 6.12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. You thought it was physical? This is not a physical thing here, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, four different levels of a hierarchy in the spiritual realm that the believer fights against. This is, this is a reality that so many people, I think, don't fully grasp. Number four, we need to recognize not only the spiritual nature of the conflict, but recognize the spiritual weapons of war. He says in verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical, but mighty through God. 
to the pulling down of strongholds. They, we're not looking at physical weapons here. We're, we, you know, we don't need Peter's sword in the garden. We need Jesus' prayer in the garden. And notice what Paul calls the power of God in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God. The Corinthians wanted Paul to dress the gospel in oratory skill. Really. Paul says, if I do that, I, I will have weakened it. I will have made it into uh, an unsaving gospel because it's based on man's power, man's ability. It, it will make it impotent of its power. You, you must preach Christ crucified. You must preach sinners that are in the hands, as John Edwards said, of an angry God. He is a holy God who will dispense righteous judgment and, and, and eternal hell awaits. They must repent, surrender their life to Christ as Lord. They must be saved. You can't alter the message. You can't make it weakened by, by man's skill. It doesn't need human philosophy. I remember when I was a younger Christian, I used to share the gospel, and I would say, you know, you know, the Bible says we've all, you know, sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the good news is Jesus died for us. I, I, I wanted to skip over the sin part and the hell part so fast. I was like, I was so afraid to like, it was just an uncomfortable conversation. <laughs> now I, I will spend 95% of the time on getting the person lost. I, will, I won't even bring Jesus up until we've had a long conversation about. And, and when I go, if, if, if you don't know how to share the gospel, please, I, I don't mean this in, a, in any type of demeaning way. Please come to Foundations class and you will sit down with me and I will walk through and show you how I share the gospel. And if you're not saved, very good chance that you're going to understand clearly the gospel and may God's grace would bring you to salvation. And if you have a friend that's not saved, you need to bring them to foundations. Some of you have done that. We've had people saved week after week. People, God's just doing a great, great work. And, 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 but, but you need to know how to do that. But this, this watered-down gospel, this, you know, let's all, and don't do this. I'm not telling you to do this. But people say, oh, let's all stand and, you know, just pray this with me. Jesus, I believe in you. And this is your word and the Joel Osteen kind of prayer of salvation. And, and people don't even understand sin. They have no idea that Jesus is Lord. They don't even know. They, a Buddhist and a Hindu, you know, Hindus will accept Jesus as easily as anyone. They'll toss him in the pile with all their 100,000 other gods. They don't even understand what the gospel is. Turn with me to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, I just want to, so, so the power of God, the, the, the weapons that we have start with the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And, and I know you're familiar with Ephesians 6, so I'm just going to skim this, uh, but highlight these things just to bring them to your mind. But Ephesians 6 gives us, in this sixth chapter epistle uh, to Ephesus, which was the mother church to the other churches, Paul started the church. Timothy became a pastor there. And he says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So you've got to be strong in the Lord and not in your own power. Verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes, the trickery, the deceits of the devil. It's His armor that allows you to be able 
to stand. Now, verse 12 tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against those. And I listed those four different hierarchies as we read those just a minute ago. Verse 13, wherefore, take unto you the, a few pieces of the armor of God. Is that right? The whole armor of God that you may be able to notice. I believe it's a histomai in the Greek. Uh, withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, verse 14, stand therefore. Stands also mentioned in verse 11. This is like, this is, this is soldier language. Now, now what, what are these pieces of, of, of armor that, I, that are so necessary? The first one is in verse 14. Stand therefore having your loins gird about with truth and have on the breastplate of righteousness. So the belt of truth is the first. The belt was what held the tunic in. And it, it's really what held everything together. The breastplate would be locked in. You, you had your sword, all of that. If, if, you know, with this piece of cloth, the, the hole was cut out, basically brought over the top of them, they would take that, they would tuck it into even the belt so that they could move and run, and, and, and it, was, it, was, it was what really kept everything together. So the, the belt of truth is the Word of God. It's the truth of God. No Christian will ever win without the truth of God's Word. Secondly, he says you need to have the breastplate of righteousness. You need to have that on. One of the places the enemy would seek to defeat Roman soldiers is by piercing their vital organs. We have uh, several police officers in our church. We're so thankful for you. Uh, really appreciate the work you do. Um, definitely under um, underappreciated. But these these guys are wearing vests uh, that they don't wear vests over their legs. You know they don't wear vests on their arms. They're, they're wearing vests right here because this is your vital section. You hit somebody in this region. Uh, unless you're a bad shot or got lucky to miss, uh, like it's, it's probably going to take you out. It's going to hit one of those vital organs, the lung, uh, your heart, uh, your intestines, some, some area that's going to do vital damage, critical damage to that person. So the breastplate protects you. Uh, and, and, and this is what protects, it says, uh, against all the fiery darts of the wicked. The, well, the shield will, but the, the breastplate will also be able to protect against those things. It, and it's your righteousness. It's, it's not your salvation righteousness. It's your day-to-day living a righteous life. When you begin to live unrighteous, you're exposing yourself to, to enemy assault. You, you must live an upper... And, and, and the word righteous, the best way to understand this... Righteousness means living right with God. It's the cleanest way you can think about that. The, the next piece of armor are the shoes of the gospel of peace, peace in verse number 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now listen, uh, you could be a great fighter. I mean, you know, say you're battling Mike Tyson, probably one of the, one of the toughest guys ever. But if he had like a, a nail in his foot... As tough as he is, he would be in a bad shape. There's a lot of guys that could, could really do some harm to him if he was not able to... Def- because there's a lot of parts of your body you could hurt, but if you hurt a person's foot, so, so your feet need to be protected, right? They need to be ready. They need to be protected. And it allowed them to march, to, to climb, to protect them. And, and, the, and the gospel not only is, is the, um, allows them to advance, but also they, the preparation is the idea that, that you would... You would be able to, to uh, gain ground, that you could move forward, that you uh, were not uh, bumbling around on your feet. So, so you need to be shod with that. And that's why in Romans chapter 10, it says, Blessed 
How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings. You need to have that preparation uh, in your heart that you can share that message. Uh, because again, the gospel, the Romans 1.16, it is the power of God into salvation. I'm, I'm somewhat amazed at times the, the, the number of Christians that are not able or ready to share their faith. If there's one thing that you need to know, it is how do I bring people the gospel? What would I say if somebody today asked me, how do you get to heaven? Would you be ready to share the gospel with them? You, you need to do that. You need to prepare yourself in that way uh, as fast and as capable as you can. Uh, number four piece of armor is the shield of faith. Verse 16 says, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Uh, this was a, uh, back then they would take arrows, dip them in pitch, shoot them, at, let it set them on fire and shoot them at their enemy. And so here you see that it's not one fiery dart, but there's many fiery darts the enemy shoots. And these, these shields were large shields. They could actually lock them together with other people uh, over top of them and inside of them. So it's like coming together as well. But that faith is necessary. You must believe God. You must have a strong faith. And in our faith, in God increases when we learn the word of God. Romans 1.17 says faith comes by hearing the word of God. But it also comes, James chapter 1, when we endure through trials. As you look back, you're like, man, God has shown up in my life and he's done this. And, and so our faith is a massive way because he, Satan's going to shoot at you to try to get you to doubt God, to be like the Israelites in the wilderness. Don't fall for those deceptions. A fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. Uh, verse number 17, and take the helmet of salvation. The, the helmet of salvation, he's talking to Christians here, so we know he's not saying you need to be saved. But rather the helmet of salvation is the idea that you need to take hold of the certainty and assurance of your salvation. You know, there are two ways Satan attacks our salvation, discouragement and with doubt. First, he points to our shortcomings, faults, and failures, tells us we could be a no-good, unworthy Christian. Uh, you're not worthy to come to church, unworthy to serve God. He will want to discourage you by pointing out the failures of your life, making you feel unworthy. Anybody ever felt like that in your life where I just don't feel worthy? And, and he will beat you up with that. I've talked to people who grew up in maybe a legalistic system, and they just put such law upon themselves, and you just need to understand this. If this is your life, let, let me just give you something, and I don't have time to expand on it too much, but if this is your life, and there's sometimes you're like, man, I just made a monster mistake in my life, and there's a big old faith act in my life, you know, and this is, this is typical life, but then you had some down points, you had some up points, and as you go along there, let me ask you a question. How does God remember you? You know how man usually does it? If this is the plane of our life, we're usually like, you know, this person's done all these things. But God doesn't do that. When you get to the book of Hebrews 11, you know what he does? He highlights all the, the top tier things the person does. <laughs> In the eternal record of God's word, the way he eulogizes people is by highlighting all the wonderful things they did. It's incredible. I mean, Abraham was a mess. I, I spent two years preaching through Exodus 
two years going through Genesis, and I'm like, man, these guys are, they, they, their lives, I feel, I feel so much better in life right now, you know, I feel like, you know, these guys are so human, they're so much like us, but they did some monstrosity sometimes, I mean, there's some things that's like, whoa, like that's intense, Abraham, it's not your sister, it's your wife. But I could say, yeah, but that's really a lie and you're scared. Do you not care that they took her? Where's your manliness? And then your son goes off and does the same thing. And then you slept with Hagar. What are you thinking? Like Jacob, what were you so drunk? You slept with Leah? She's not even good looking. Like, what are you doing? No, I shouldn't have said that. I don't know where that came from. So... Yeah, rewind, rewind. Uh, these are things, but, but you know, God comes along and he says, you know, boom, 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 boom. So I just, I just want you to know, if you were looking at your life, Satan's wanting to point out everything down here. And God's saying, let me show you, because my grace covers the multitude of sin. And he will deal with our sin severely, but when you bring it to Christ, it is forgiven. And we, we, should, we should praise him for that, shouldn't we? So, so discouraging us, also to cause us doubt. Satan wants you to not believe you can be saved and know it. He wants you to doubt it all the time. I'm going to tell you, if you're at Lighthouse and you, you don't believe in eternal security, and you're like, you know, I, just, I have a lot of questions about that, I'm more than happy to sit down and like talk with you and, and, and explain to you from the Bible. And if you have some serious doubts about that, I, I am more than happy to do that in a non... Listen, I don't, it's not a confrontational thing for me. I don't get upset by it. Like I, I, I didn't believe you... I thought you could lose your salvation for years. 15 years of my life growing up in charismatic churches. I, I debated with my pastor about that until I began to study the Word. And uh, like I, I, I know what the Bible says about that. Like you're, it's very clear. When you're saved, you are eternally saved. It is just, it is a biblical reality. And if you could lose your salvation, it's not you that failed, Jesus failed. Because Jesus said, all that the Father hath given to me shall come to me, and I will lose none of them. And if he lost them, the shepherd lost them. It's not you that failed, he failed you. Well, it's my faith, yes, and who gave it to you? Did he give you eyeballs? He gave you eyeballs. He gave you faith, gave you faith. He called you, he saves you, he keeps you, he secures you, you're his. That's why you're here tonight. You think it's because of you or me? We're only here because he's gracious enough to hold us, amen? Uh, we got to keep rolling. So the sword of the spirit is the next thing. So, so you got to have that assurance, the sword of the spirit. Now the sword here is uh, the Greek word makerai, uh, makera, it's, it's, it's about a 6 to 18 inch dagger. It's not so much like a long sword as... They did have a long, long sword that they would use to, uh, to, to fight with. Uh, this is not that sword. The rumphi was like the big, long, three-foot sword. This is the, the shorter sword. So it's the idea that you would have to use it with skill. You'd have to have skill. So, and then it says, uh, again, there, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the sword of the Spirit had to be used with precision. Uh, also, the Greek term rendered word is not lagos. Uh, meaning like all scripture, but rima, uh, taking the sword of the spirit, which is the rima of God. That's why it's important to also go back and study these original words, because it's referring to selected parts of scripture, not the totality of scripture. 
So it's the idea that you need to use specific truth to defend specific attacks with skill, right? With this little sword, you get, and, and, and people that are good with swords, uh, they have to practice it. Is this 2 Timothy 2.15? Study to show yourself approved unto God. You know what would be good for you to do? Every week, write down a question you don't know the answer to and study it until you find it out. Go to gotquestions.org and have fun. Raise your hand if you don't know what God.org is. Okay. Why do I even ask? People are like, I don't want to ask. Maybe that would look foolish if I raised my hand. No, that's gotquestions.org is a great website that gives some great answers, biblically sound groups. So um, much more I could say about that. Uh, let's go back to uh, and wrap some stuff up here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, last couple things, last thing, couple things I want to share with you. So, so we need to recognize the spiritual weapons that we have. But lastly, we need to, re- third, fourthly, we got two more real quick. Recognize who and what our spiritual enemies are. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, we don't wrestle flesh and blood, but there's, there's, there's spiritual warfare that goes on here. And he refers to this as strongholds in, in, in chapter number 10, back here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse 5. He says, uh, these strongholds, uh, which today, uh, w- w- which, which is a word that means like fortresses. Um, in those days, they were like military installations, fortified places, usually put up on an acropolis, which was like an elevated mountain or hill. And if there was ever a insurgence of enemies, they would all, the whole city would go inside of that fortress and be protected against the onslaught. So, so that's what these strongholds are. That's what would have came into the minds of the people that were reading this. Uh, today, uh, these strongholds are um, the elevated, the, 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 like some people think the strongholds are like demons that you're fighting against, but that's not actually what it is. It's ideologies, false teachings, lies that come against the truth. And how do we know that? Because look at verse number five, 2 Corinthians 10, verse five. He says, casting down, not demons, but imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So when people go into binding Satan stuff, like that's, that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says to do. It says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But the Bible tells us to cast down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The battle is not against demons, but rather for the minds of people who are led captive by these lies. As David Guzik says, strongholds in this context are wrong thoughts and perceptions contradicting the true knowledge of God and the nature of God. They exalt themselves against God. So, so we are to cast them down, verse 5 says, which is a present tense verb. It's continually to be done. The word imaginations is the word lagamas. Lagismas in the Greek, it means arguments, theories, reasoning, speculations, and philosophies, and it's every high thing, every lofty or raised up thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. These things lift themselves up against God. Today, these fortresses come in a multiplicity of different ways, worldly philosophies, secular psychologies, false religions, cults, evolutionary theories. All of this just assaults the, the, the Word of God, the faith of Christ, to cause people to doubt and it, and it causes people, like Romans 1 says, that they know there's a God, but they reject Him and they profess themselves to be wise. And God said they became fools. Colossians 2.8 also speaks to this. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. 
So, so how do we deal with them when these false ideologies, these lies and deceptions come? It says that we are to bring them into the obedience of Christ. They are to be brought into the obedience of Christ. We are to bring them into captivity. And uh, when worldly thinking begins to invade our hearts, false teachings, lies, and deceptions, we must bring those under the subjection of Jesus Christ. That's why Romans 12 says, be not conformed to this world, but transformed. And it starts in the renewing of your mind. This is an inward, this is a spiritual battle. And, and that's how the victory comes. When people say scripture is not enough, you need to say, well, 2 Peter 1.3 says, according as his divine power has given us all, us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, you need more. When people say you need to trust in yourself, you can just you can do this. Just believe in you. Well, 2 Corinthians 3.5 says that we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. When you need to love yourself more, well, the Bible says we need to deny ourselves and to love others as ourselves. That's our default position to love ourselves. That's not the, what the Bible says to do. This means you use the rema, the sword of the scriptures to combat the lies, and they just come in all these different ways. It's just constantly, constantly. And they're so wily and tricky, and it's just deceptive. That's why you need to have wise counselors in your life as well, where you're learning and you can bounce things off of them as well. And in, in verse 6, he closes out, and you see here where you, we need to be wise in our spiritual battles. We need to be wise in our spiritual battles. He says in verse 6, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What he's saying here, this is interesting. He's like, I'm, we're ready to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. But instead of like coming against the whole church, he's like, I'm going to come to you in the gentleness and meekness of Christ. I'm going to pour out these truths to you, and I'm going to be patient because I'm going to see how you respond in obedience. And the ones who respond, I know they're the true ones, and then that leaves me the ones I need to target. He's separating the wheat from the chaff, the goats from the sheep, because the, the faithful are coming over here. It's like Josh was saying, as for me and my house, choose you this day who you'll serve. And when they come, and as Moses was like separating the sons of Korah, the Korites, and, 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 and they just destroyed them, right? This is, this is literally what Paul's doing in verse 6. He's separating them. He's like, we're ready to bring vengeance on this situation, but we're going we're to be patient. We're going to separate this. And, and, and when your obedience is fulfilled, then we're going to know who we need to have vengeance upon. And so these are the keys to winning the spiritual battle. And again, if there's ever a day when we need to have wisdom in approaching life and lies and deception, the permeating effect of all of that that comes through these media devices, just constantly filling the airways. Uh, we need to be those who know the scriptures. That means we need to be in the scriptures, and we need to be those who can teach the scriptures to those who come with questions to us. And so maybe tonight you're going through some struggles. You know, the Bible says if, you, if you're going through something, you're not quite sure, because sometimes you can be caught in such a predicament, such a quandary of situation that you're just like, I just need godly wisdom. Be patient. Step back and say, you know what? Instead of putting my hands on this, let me give this to the Lord. Let me really trust him. Let me pray through this. You know, God can do so much more as we turn to him in prayer than we can do with our own abilities, right? Remember, we don't need Peter's sword. We need the Lord's prayer. And that's where our strength comes. Let's all stand this evening. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, and I pray that as we search our hearts and lives, maybe there's some tonight that are facing some hardships and battles, and, 
and challenges and struggles, Lord, I pray that you would grant them the wisdom and faith. Help us to stand strong in the Spirit of God, not to waver, but to understand this battle is real. It's intense. But God, we can do all things through Christ because you are the one who strengthens us. We are able to stand because you keep us. You uphold us. We praise you for it. Bless now, and I pray if anyone tonight doesn't know Christ, that tonight would be the night that they would surrender their life to Jesus Christ. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.